0: Scripture is from Jesus and speaking to the disciples in the Gospel of John, the 14th chapter. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are plenty of rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And when I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and bring you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. I am the way and the truth and the life, said Jesus. I believe that he is. And I know... A number of people believe that as well. But I also have come to believe that as Christians, especially in North America, we've put way too much emphasis on the truth of Jesus and Jesus being the truth. And we've begun to separate it from Jesus as the way. And I believe that the overemphasis on Jesus as the truth has cost us in a number of ways. First of all, we live in a world where, quite frankly, most people believe there is no absolute truth and that truth is all relative and your truth is truth for you and my truth is truth for me. I'm not agreeing with them in that assessment, but I am saying that our insistence on truth being the subject of discussion falls on deaf ears. It doesn't leave us with much ground to have a conversation or a dialogue about Christ. Another problem with pushing Jesus as the truth is we make Jesus a head trip. And the important thing is that you believe in Jesus. And everything else is sort of tossed out the window as long as you have the right beliefs. And so evangelism turns into a debate trying to get people to believe the same things about Jesus that you believe. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this in your life, but in a religious debate there are no winners. If you win, by definition, you have lost in, in this debate. Another thing that happens when we push Jesus as a truth is we begin to make the Christian faith uh, a series of propositions to buy into, a certain set of beliefs that we, our ideas were supposed to carry around in our head, and these propositions then constitute truth. But the Hebrews knew way before we did that the truth was always relational, that you knew things through interaction, that the only way you knew someone was to spend time with them and the only way you knew something was to get involved with that something. And so uh, we have turned Christianity into a set of things you could just hold in your mind where I think Jesus intended that Christianity would be an ongoing relationship. And another thing that's proved very costly, if I can borrows sort of from the joker in the dark Knight movie you'll remember his lament and what he hopes for he says this town needs a better class of criminal and i'm going to give it to him well this town needs a better class of christian and our emphasis on jesus as the truth and just holding the right beliefs and doctrines about him has not yielded a better class of christian it is not yielded people who live in such a way that others are automatically uh, drawn to the difference in the way they lead their lives. Christianity, again, just becomes sort of a head trip or a belief trip and it has little or nothing to do with what we actually do day to day when we over-focus on Jesus as the truth and to miss him as the way. Michael Novak's really helped me understand this. He talks about convictions that people hold. And he said there are three kinds of convictions. One is public convictions. And that's what I say in public, I believe, because, well, most everybody else believes it or I feel some peer pressure to, believe, to say I believe it, whether or not I really believe it at all. And uh, that's, that's what you might call a public conviction. So since we're in San Antonio, I might say, well, I'm sure that the Spurs are really much younger than the Lakers. And, and when it all comes out, they'll win. And, and I'm supposed to say that. But whether privately I believe that when I, when I look at the games and the rosters, well, that's maybe a different matter. And then there are private convictions. That's a conviction that you think you hold. But when you really live your life, you may or may not hold it privately, I'm convinced that memorizing the Bible is a good thing to do. And memorizing Scripture is important. But if you look at the way I live my life this week, I spent a lot more time watching games than I did actually memorizing the Bible. It was a private conviction, but it wasn't really what I was doing. And then lastly, Novak says, There are core convictions. And whether you say these things or not, this is what you really believe because this is what you do. And our beliefs are only really validated by the way we live our lives. And when we put too much emphasis on beliefs, sometimes they get separated from the way that we live our life. And that has gotten us into faith in trouble. Let me try this on you. In the Bible, the demons are talked about a number of times. And when James talks about them, this is what he says is interesting about demons. He said, they believe. Demons believe in Jesus. They know who Jesus is. They believe Jesus is who he says he is. But it does not affect the way they live their life. And look at this description of the earliest Christians in the book of Acts. They are called followers. The demons are called believers. The early Christians are called followers of the way. And when you separate truth from the way, you get people who believe, but oftentimes those beliefs just don't make much difference. Eugene Peterson in his wonderful book The Jesus Way that we'll begin discussing this week on Sunday or or Tuesday or Thursday says that one of the most damaging things that's happened in North America is we put so much emphasis on having the right beliefs about Jesus that as long as we hold those beliefs we can go out and live in any way we want. And what happens is oftentimes he says we actually live in ways that are antithetical to the ways that Jesus lived. But it doesn't seem to register with us because, well, quite frankly, we believe in Jesus. So as long as we believe, we can act in whatever way seems right to us. That notion would have seemed very strange to Jesus himself, who knew that belief had to result in a way of life. If you look at Hebrews 11 on the chapter on faith, it's all about what people did who believed. And Jesus would want and expect that for us. But what happens is we often hold Jesus in our mind as who we believe in. And then in our actual lives, we sort of live the way everybody else lives. We substitute, says Peterson, and I think he's right here, the American way for the Jesus way. I have done it myself. The American way, when it takes the place of the Jesus way, often results that convenience is the most important thing. I mean, where else in the world could you find a pastor who will move the time of Bible study so that everyone can watch the Super Bowl? Only in North America. Only when we have exchanged our ways for Jesus' ways. An overemphasis on size. Size has come with the world's way. It's the way of the, of the Romans and the Greeks and the Babylonians and the Egyptians before them who built the temples much larger than the temple in Jerusalem. They emphasized that size meant that you, you would be effective. Jesus, quite frankly, spent most of his ministry with 19 people, 12 men, 7 women. Yes, he did feed the multitudes of 5,000, 4,000, And 7,000. But if you look at his life, he never thought if you crammed as many people in front of him as as you could, they would become disciples by the fact that they sat in a room with a person who was talking. And yet, that's become, quite frankly, the main way I operate get a bunch of people in a room, start talking, and assume that they will follow Jesus' way. Only in North America have we really believed that if you fill a football stadium full of people and tell them about Jesus, it will change the world. Jesus knew it was going to have to be more personal, one-on-one, life-on-life in order to really have disciples. Shane Claiborne has written a very provocative book called The Irresistible Revolution. He talks about interning at one of the largest churches in North America, and this church announced that they were going to spend millions and millions of dollars to move from a 4,000-seat auditorium to a 7,500-seat auditorium. And he wrote them and really questioned whether that's what Jesus wanted. And he used this analogy. He says this, what would you say about a father whose children are starving and then he decides to spend money adding an extra room to the house? You'd report him to CPS. And yet there are God's children starving all over the globe. And what we do in North America is we pour more money into the facility and into the program because that's, that's our way. That's the way that makes sense to us. That's the way we've done it. But we must wonder eventually, is this the way Jesus would do it? And the whole notion of success, Jesus never taught his disciples, if you follow me, you'll be number one. Look, let's stick together, let's execute the plan, and I think we can be more successful than the Sadducees. I think we can take them this year. You never read a message like that or heard a message like that from Jesus. And yet success has become, really, the North American gospel. At least it has in my life. And we do all sorts of things to try to achieve the top. And we try to be better than everyone else. That never seemed to be Jesus' message. But it sneaks in, no matter what our faith. I love Harold Kushner's story about a pre-med student who was between his sophomore and junior years at a very competitive college in the East. And he takes the break to travel in the Far East and he falls under the influence of a, of a guru from a, another religion who begins to talk to him about his competitive way of living and asks him provocative questions like, why do you stay up studying all night for tests just so you can make a higher grade than your best friend? And ask him other questions like, why do you want to go into a career uh, and give your life to a career when you know that career may very well separate you from your family and friends? And with questions like this, the student begins to think and and begins to wonder. And so he decides to join the ashram and and stay in in the Far East. And and his parents, of course, are very distressed because all the plans and dreams they have for him have just gone up in smoke. Well, after six months, though, he writes them to reassure them. He said, Mom and Dad, I have to tell you that this non-competitive way of life really fits my soul and I have grown a lot here. In fact, I'm doing so well that after six months I'm already the number two disciple. And I expect I will be number one by June. Our way of success creeping into defining who we are has crept into the Jesus way as well. What you need to know is that the I believe is that the Hebrew people lived among some very successful civilizations. They lived in the mightiest civilization to date at that time, Pharaoh's Egypt. Then they lived in exile under the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, who had a mighty empire. And then later, when they returned to Israel, they would live under the rule of the Pax Romana, the Roman world. But what's interesting is, even though they lived in these very successful ways, they never once adopted the ways of the people with whom they were living. When the ways that were successful were not the ways of God... They jettisoned the successful ways, and they went with God's way. Such a hard thing to do. Several years ago, as I continued to search to find some way to make our church bigger and better and all the North American dreams that I had for you and for me, I came across a book, and it was based on James Collins' business book, Good to Great. And he reminded churches that the important thing is if the staff people on the uh, church really aren't doing the job you want them to do in the exact way you want them to do it you need to get rid of them and they said remember colin says that you always have to get the right people on the bus i thought about that and something struck me that that might not be the best advice but it was in this book then all of a sudden i read another guy commenting on this book and he said when i look at jesus and his life he always had the wrong people on the bus Jesus didn't throw some off and put some others on. He never had the right people on the bus. He went with those who were willing, and they followed. Our ways are not necessarily Jesus' ways. And Jesus, when tempted to go the ways of the world in the temptation, refused. He had three temptations. One was to turn stones into bread, which is meet people's needs. Be relevant to them. There are a lot of hungry people, and he refused. Another was to climb to the temple and, and jump way off from the temple, which is already built on a hill, and then jump all the way down into the valley below. Let the angels catch you. The temptation was to be entertaining. Put on a show. Make people feel good. And he refused. And the last one was, bow down to me and you'll rule the world. It was to control the world and to, con- and to protect himself again- and protect us against the hard edges of the world. And he chose not to do that. His ways would not be the ways of the world. And as we begin to discuss the Jesus way over the next ten weeks, we just every once in a while need to stop and ask ourselves, is what we are doing the way Jesus would do it? Or is it the way that the world has taught us to do it? You see, in the words of Eugene Peterson, Jesus is not a supplement to what we're already doing. Jesus is an alternative to what we are doing. He is, to quote him, the way. Well, is this way narrowly defined? Is this way explicitly spelled out in every detail? Does this way contain an exact road map with MapQuest directions? And I would say no. Jesus deliberately chooses a metaphor and says, I am the way, which means a path, which means you just got to start walking. You've got to walk with me, and there will be obstacles in the path, and there will be detours, and, and we're going to walk together. It becomes something more interactive than just... You don't interact with MapQuest except to change your location. But God may say, start out here in a text, and you'll say, I'm going here. And God may say, mm, try this, and we may move. And we go together because we're in a relationship with Him. It's not something that's already defined and just slapped down for us. One of the things that happens when you have your faith as a map and not as a path is you know the destination and you don't pay attention to the journey. Peterson talks about the woman who came to, a good friend who came to visit him, and he's showing her these amazing sights in Montana, uh, sights of mountains, sights of glacial formations. And they're driving by all this, and she never looks up because she always wants to know where they are on the map. And she missed it all. There's no precise map. This is a conversation that we start today with the Scripture, with the Holy Spirit, with one another, and we talk about the ways that we are going. In other words, not just where we're going, but how we're going to travel. And I believe if we get on that way, and others notice, they'll want to join us. It was a great Christian of a previous uh, the earliest next um, previous century, G. K. Chesterton, who said this. It's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It's rather that it's never really been tried at all. When we move from our ways to his way, we'll really be trying it. And I believe others will try it with us.